Preface of the Stones of Venice, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. The Stones of Venice, Volume 1, by John Ruskin. Preface. In the course of arranging the following essay, I put many things aside in my thoughts to be said in the preface, things which I shall now put aside altogether and pass by, for when a book has been advertised a year and a half, it seems best to present it with as little preface as possible. Thus much, however, it is necessary for the reader to know that, when I planned the work, I had materials by me, collected at different times of sojourn in Venice, during the last seventeen years, which it seemed to me might be arranged with little difficulty, and which I believed to be of value as illustrating the history of southern Gothic requiring however some clearer assurance respecting certain points of chronology i went to venice finally in the autumn of eighteen forty nine not doubting but that the dates of the principal edifices of the ancient city were either ascertained or ascertainable without extraordinary research to my consternation i found that the venetian antiquaries were not agreed within a century as to the date of the building of the facades of the ducal palace and that nothing was known of any other civil edifice of the early city, except that at some time or other it had been fitted up for somebody's reception, and been thereupon fresh painted. Every date in question was determinable only by internal evidence, and it became necessary for me to examine not only every one of the older palaces stone by stone, but every fragment throughout the city which afforded any clue to the formation of its styles. This I did as well as I could, and I believe there will be found, in the following pages, the only existing account of the details of early Venetian architecture on which dependence can be placed as far as it goes. I do not care to point out the deficiencies of other works on this subject. The reader will find, if he examines them, either that the buildings to which I shall specially direct his attention have been hitherto undescribed, or else that there are great discrepancies between previous descriptions and mine for which discrepancies I may be permitted to give this single and sufficient reason, that my account of every building is based on personal examination and measurement of it, and that my taking the pains so to examine what I had to describe was a subject of grave surprise to my Italian friends. The work of the Marchese Salvatico is, however, to be distinguished with respect. It is clear in arrangement, and full of useful, though vague, information and i have found some cause to adopt in great measure its views of the chronological succession of the edifices of venice i shall have cause hereafter to quarrel with it on other grounds but not without expression of gratitude for the assistance it has given me fontana's fabrice di venezia is also historically valuable but does not attempt to give architectural detail sicognara as is now generally known is so inaccurate as hardly to deserve mention Indeed, it is not easy to be accurate in an account of anything, however simple. Zoologists often disagree in their descriptions of the curve of a shell, or the plumage of a bird, though they may lay their specimen on the table and examine it at their leisure. How much greater becomes the likelihood of error in the description of things, which must be in many parts observed from a distance, or under unfavorable circumstances of light and shade, and of which many of the distinctive features have been worn away by time. I believe few people have any idea of the cost of truth in these things, of the expenditure of time necessary to make sure of the simplest facts, 
and of the strange way in which separate observations will sometimes falsify each other, incapable of reconcilement, owing to some imperceptible inadvertency. I am ashamed of the number of times in which I have had to say, in the following pages, I am not sure, and I claim for them no authority, as if they were thoroughly sifted from error, even in what they more confidently state. Only as far as my time and strength and mind serve me, I have endeavoured down to the smallest matters, to ascertain and speak the truth. Nor was the subject without many and most discouraging difficulties, peculiar to itself. As far as my inquiries have extended, there is not a building in Venice, raised prior to the sixteenth century, which has not sustained essential change in one or more of its most important features. By far the greater number present examples of three or four different styles. It may be successive, it may be accidentally associated, and in many instances the restorations or additions have gradually replaced the entire structure of the ancient fabric, of which nothing but the name remains, together with a kind of identity exhibited in the anomalous association of the modernized portions. The will of the old building asserted through them all, stubbornly, though vainly, expressive, superseded by codicils, and falsified by misinterpretation, yet animating what would otherwise be a mere group of fantastic masks, as embarrassing to the antiquary as to the mineralogist, the epigene crystal, formed by materials of one substance modelled on the parish crystals of another. The Church of St. Mark's itself, harmonious as its structure may at first sight appear, is an epitome of the changes of Venetian architecture from the tenth to the nineteenth century. Its crypt and the line of low arches which support the screen are apparently the earliest portions. The lower stories of the main fabric are of the eleventh and twelfth centuries, with later Gothic interpolations. The pinnacles are of the earliest fully developed Venetian Gothic, fourteenth century. But one of them, that on the projection at the eastern extremity of the Piazzetta dei Leoni, is of far finer and probably earlier workmanship than all the rest. The southern range of pinnacles is again inferior to the northern and western, and visibly of later date. Then the screen, which most writers have described as part of the original fabric, bears its date inscribed on its architrave, 1394, and with it are associated a multitude of small screens, balustrades, decorations of the interior building, and probably the rose window of the south transept. Then come the interpolated traceries of the front and sides, then the crocketings of the upper arches, extravagances of the incipient renaissance, and finally the figures which carry the waterspouts on the north side, utterly barbarous seventeenth or eighteenth century work, connect the whole with the plastered restorations of the year 1844 and 1845. Most of the palaces in Venice have sustained interpolations hardly less numerous and those of the ducal palace are so intricate that a year's labour would probably be insufficient altogether to disentangle and define them. I therefore gave up all thoughts of obtaining a perfectly clear chronological view of the early architecture, but the dates necessary to the main purposes of the book the reader will find well established, and of the evidence brought forward for those of less importance, he is himself to judge. Doubtful estimates are never made grounds of argument, and the accuracy of the account of the buildings themselves, for which alone I pledge myself, is of course entirely independent of them. 
In like manner, as the statements briefly made in the chapters on construction involve questions so difficult and so general, that I cannot hope that every expression referring to them will be found free from error, and as the conclusions to which I have endeavoured to lead the reader are thrown into a form the validity of which depends on that of each successive step, it might be argued, if fallacy or weakness could be detected in one of them, that all the subsequent reasonings were valueless. The reader may be assured, however, that it is not so, the method of proof used in the following essay being only one out of many which were in my choice, adopted because it seemed to me the shortest and simplest, not as being the strongest. In many cases the conclusions are those which men of quick feeling would arrive at instinctively, and I then sought to discover the reasons of what so strongly recommended itself as truth. Though these reasons could every one of them, from the beginning to the end of the book, be proved insufficient, the truth of its conclusions would remain the same. I should only regret that I had dishonoured them by an ill-grounded defence, and endeavour to repair my error by a better one. I have not, however, written carelessly, nor should I in any wise have expressed doubt of the security of the following argument, but that it is physically impossible for me, being engaged quite as much with mountains and clouds and trees in criticism of painting, as with architecture, to verify, as I should desire, the expression of every sentence bearing upon empirical and technical matters. Life is not long enough, nor does a day pass by without causing me to feel more bitterly the impossibility of carrying out to the extent which I should desire, the separate studies which general criticism continually forces me to undertake. I can only assure the reader that he will find the certainty of every statement I permit myself to make increase with its importance, and that for the security of the final conclusions of the following essay, as well as for the resolute veracity of its account of whatever facts have come under my own immediate cognizance, I will pledge myself to the uttermost. It was necessary, to the accomplishment of the purpose of the work, of which account is given in the first chapter, that I should establish some canons of judgment which the general reader should thoroughly understand, and, if it pleased him, accept, before we took cognizance, together, of any architecture whatsoever. It has taken me more time and trouble to do this than I expected. But, if I have succeeded, the time done will be of use for many other purposes than that to which it is now put. The establishment of these canons, which I have called the foundations, and some account of the connection of Venetian architecture with that of the rest of Europe, have filled the present volume. The second will, I hope, contained all I have to say about Venice itself. It was, of course, inexpedient to reduce drawings of crowded details to the size of an octavo volume, I do not say impossible, but inexpedient, requiring infinite pains on the part of the engraver, with no result except farther pains to the beholder. And as, on the other hand, folio books are not easy reading, I determined to separate the text and the unreducible plates. I have given, with the principal text, all the illustrations absolutely necessary to the understanding of it, and, in the detached work, such additional text as has special reference to the larger illustrations. A considerable number of these larger plates were at first intended to be executed in tinted lithography, but, finding the result unsatisfactory, I have determined to prepare the principal subjects by mezzotinting, a change of method requiring two new drawings to be made of every subject one a carefully penned outline for the etcher, and then a finished drawing upon the etching. This work does not proceed fast, while I am also occupied with the completion of the text, 
but the numbers of it will appear as fast as I can prepare them. For the illustrations of the body of the work itself, I have used any kind of engraving which seems suited to the subjects, line and mezzotint, on steel, with mixed lithographs and woodcuts, at considerable loss of uniformity in the appearance of the volume, but, I hope, with advantage in rendering the character of the architecture it describes. And both in the plates and the text, I have aimed chiefly at clear intelligibility, that any one, however little versed in the subject, might be able to take up the book and understand what it meant forthwith. I have utterly failed of my purpose, if I have not made all the essential parts of the essay intelligible to the least learned, and easy to the most desultory readers, who are likely to take interest in the matter at all. There are few passages which even require so much as an acquaintance with the elements of Euclid, and these may be missed, without harm to the sense of the rest, by every reader to whom they may appear mysterious, and the architectural terms necessarily employed, which are very few, are explained as they occur, or in a note, so that, though I may often be found trite or tedious, I trust that I shall not be obscure. I am especially anxious to rid this essay of ambiguity, because I want to gain the ear of all kinds of persons. Every man has, at some time of his life, personal interest in architecture. He has influence on the design of some public building, or he has to buy, or build, or alter his own house. It signifies less whether the knowledge of other arts be general or not. Men may live without buying pictures or statues, but in architecture all must in some way commit themselves, they must do mischief, and waste their money if they do not know how to turn it to account. Churches and shops and warehouses and cottages and small row and place and terrace houses must be built and lived in, however joyless or inconvenient and it is assuredly intended that all of us should have knowledge, and act upon our knowledge, in matters with which we are daily concerned, and not to be left to the caprice of architects or mercy of contractors. There is not, indeed, anything in the following essay bearing on the special forms and needs of modern buildings, but the principles it inculcates are universal, and they are illustrated from the remains of a city which should surely be interesting to the men of London as affording the richest existing examples of architecture raised by a mercantile community, for civil uses and domestic magnificence. Denmark Hill, February, 1851 End of Preface